When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Uplifting Impact Podcast. I'm Justin Ponder, Chief Information Officer with Uplifting Impact, and I'm excited to be hosting you today as we dive deeper into our journey to make the world more diverse, equitable, and inclusive. Today, I'm very excited to be talking with Anthony C. Hood. Dr. Anthony Hood serves as Executive Vice President and Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer for First Horizon Bank. In this role, he leads the development and execution of firm-wide strategy for embedding DEI into the DNA of the organization. He previously served as the Director of Civic Innovation in the Office of the President at University of Alabama at Birmingham, as well as a tenured Associate Professor of Management at the School of Business at UAB. An electrical engineer by training. Wow. Dr. Hood enjoyed a 10-year career with Bell South and AT&T, Renaissance man. He left AT&T and pursue his PhD full-time at the University of Alabama, Roll Tide. Roll Tide. Since completing, <laughs> since completing his PhD in only three years, my goodness. He has completed studies at the Harvard Business School, Stanford, and the Morehouse School of Medicine. Dr. Hood received his bachelor's and MBA from UAB. Go Blazers. Oh, blazers. <laughs> in 2019, Dr. Hood was honored by the UAB Alumni Association with the prestigious Distinguished Alumni Award. Dr. Hood is a board member of a number of organizations, including the Kiwanis Club of Birmingham, Birmingham Education Foundation, Urban Impact, and the Housing Authority of the Birmingham District, where he serves as chairman. Wow. And on top of that, he's a superhero as well. All right. <laughs> Dr. Anthony C. Hood, welcome to our show. Man, Justin, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. And uh, forgive the reflex of Roll Tide and Go Blazers, but that's just how we roll down here in the South. <laughs> oh, I understand. You notice I had give the pause. I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> I understand. You got to show your pride. Right. So thank you very much for joining us, sir. And thank you with all your, wow, that's an impressive resume, a list of credentials there. But we'd also like to add to it another piece of investigation, another element to your bio, we'd like to ask all our guests, what brings you joy? Brings me joy, man, so much, man. I'm just super grateful um, just for life. I'm grateful for my wife. Uh, funny story, Robin Hood. Yes, that is her name. <laughs> <laughs> Was that part yeah. of the equation when she's factoring in marriage? Yeah, and taking yeah. Oh. I, I actually gave her my business card first day I met her and she laughed and gave it back to me. <laughs> she was like, I can't take that chance. <laughs> and here 20 years later, we're still together. So wow. Uh, yeah, we uh we have two two daughters, 11 and 13, and they certainly give me joy. And uh, you know, outside of spending time with family, uh I love playing cards, spades, bid with, tonk, 
uh, watching Alabama football. Like, so those are things that that's, that's a, that's a good weekend for me sitting around with my family, my friends playing cards, watching Alabama football. Hopefully they win. Not like uh, at the time of this recording, they had just lost to Texas A&M our first loss in like almost two years. So oh. it's heartbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for sharing that. And We'll transition to maybe some of the, a little bit more serious stuff, I guess, but we'll see. (laughs) In your career as a diversity, equity, and inclusion leader, how have you developed and maintained a diverse and inclusive work culture? I'm sure maybe some of your card game strategies translate (laughs) here as well. (laughs) You know, my thing is, you know, you can learn a lot by a person by playing cards with them. Uh, So, Mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, from a professional standpoint, uh, you know, I recently rolled into this role at, uh, at the time of this recording is a little less than a year that I've been in, in this particular role at First Horizon Bank. But prior to that, I was a professor uh, in the business school at UAB and my research centered on teamwork, uh, particularly how do you drive creativity and innovation in teams? And a lot of that is through developing a psychologically safe environment for people to be their authentic selves, to engage in, you know, conflict, particularly the kind of conflict that drives better decision-making and problem-solving. So I was always fascinated around how do you build inclusive teams? And so what I'm doing now is really translating that academic research in this practical environment uh, in banking. So, you know, some of the ways that we do that, um, you know, in a lot of organizations, you see we have employee resource groups. We have a diversity, equity, inclusion council so that we have people all across the organization be involved in that work. But I think more importantly, I think my focus is on a couple of different areas. So one, making sure that we're leveraging the very best practices in driving diversity, equity, and inclusion outcomes in the organization. Not about what we feel, not about what we used to do and, you know, traditions, but literally all this academic research from peer academics, you know, in colleges and universities or the McKinsey's of the world, you know, there are a lot of different Kellogg Foundation, Ford Foundation. There are a lot of different entities that are doing this research. We just got to make use of it. So I'm leveraging best practices, also trying to use data, mm-hmm. data driven decision making, because, you know, you can't control what you don't measure and what gets measured gets done. So I'm really trying to use the same vigor and rigor that we utilize to understand our deposits, our credits and investments. We can track that by the week, by the day, even by the hour if we wanted to. I want to make sure that we're tracking diversity, equity, inclusion with that same rigor and vigor and then utilizing that in order to drive better decision making uh, from our leaders. I say lastly, making sure that DEI is not viewed as just a program of the human resources department. Mm. Um, It's not just PR, it's not just communications, but it really has to be embedded in our DNA and in our systems. And when I talk about our systems, our systems of hiring, our systems of evaluating talent, our systems for evaluating high potential, high performing leaders, our systems for doing annual evaluations and quarterly evaluations. How does that tie to whether somebody gets promoted or not. And then ultimately, how does that tie to how we do rewards and recognition, meaning salary, stock options, and things like that. So for me, that's where the rubber hits the road for DEI is making sure that it's embedded in the systems because it's the systemic issues that what we've seen have drive some of the unfortunate outcomes that we have in organizations. It's going to take that same systemic approach to undo some of those things and then drive better outcomes. 
Mm. And we tell this a lot of times to people who say, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion requires a very charismatic personality, requires people who are out in front. It requires people who are skilled in the area of conflict. And I'm just a person who likes to be behind the scenes and I like to quietly crunch numbers. And precisely what you said, well, that's very important. But a follow-up question that I have is, how do you track data on the more qualitative, difficult to quantify, and maybe in some ways more beneficial things like inclusion and belonging? Like lots of organizations we see, they flock right away to diversity because we can quantify it. We can count how many people from different groups we have, but we all know that you can have a lot of diversity and no one from those diverse populations feels included, belongs, or has opportunities for advancement. So how do you track data that measures inclusion and belonging? Yeah, um, you know, a lot of organizations have, you know, annual uh, employee satisfaction surveys. And so you can collect that data through those surveys. Um, our organization does that. We call it the, our associate value survey that we administer once a year. But then we also have more frequent surveys all throughout the year that we call our pulse surveys, where we're literally trying to keep our pulse on what's going on with our associates. But then there are other things like when associates, you, you know, creating an open environment where associates can send emails or have anonymous boxes where they can give uh, suggestions. So in my organization, we have a DEI innovation inventory. Uh, Mm. So anytime an associate gives us a recommendation or suggestion to say, hey, can we change the logo to the rainbow uh, for LGBTQ Pride Month? Or, hey, what's our position on Columbus Day versus Indigenous Peoples Day. You know, those are things that we gather and capture. But I think that's data as well. That's qualitative data mm-hmm. that helps us understand what's on the mind and hearts uh, of our associates. But I think even outside of just the diversity numbers, to your point, I think equity is something that we are really trying to center through my department in the organization. So equity is about fairness, is about, you know, balance, it's about, you know, do we have fair compensation and pay? When we look at our retention numbers, all those things are math. And so we can collect that data. We just have to be intentional about capturing that data and then reporting that data on a regular basis and giving it to our leaders so that they can understand how to buy, drive better decision-making. So it's a both and. It's the quantitative and the qualitative, but then putting that together so it can provide an overall picture. So one of the things that's top of my list uh, at the company is having you know really good dashboards. Uh, we have dashboards for so many other things. We need to have dashboards for DEI so I can see how does uh, the, the activity that we have around extending access to capital to women and minority-owned businesses, how does that then drive supplier diversity and procurement? Mm. Or our activity around the Charitable Foundation, are we being diverse, equitable, and inclusive in how we make grants in the community? And then does that then drive better talent acquisition? Or our diverse spend from marketing, you know, are we spending dollars with minority and women-owned media outlets? And then how does that drive other things? So if you don't really have the data quantitative and qualitatively, and if you don't put it in one place so that we can start making novel connections across the enterprise, then I think you're not maximizing the real true potential of DEI in the organization. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you for those tips. And I think that leads nicely to my next question about you already anticipated lots of resistance and difficulties. And it seems like you come with here's a whole lot of data. 
But even with that data, what challenges have you faced in this space and how have you overcome those challenges? Is data always enough? No. Uh, <laughs> oh man, right? I wish it was. <laughs> That's not the answer you're supposed to give us. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, you can look at organizations like the Googles, the all the organizations in Silicon Valley, they got that's that's what they do. They traffic in data, right? So they have the data, but just having the data alone doesn't really drive outcomes. So it takes it takes intention and it takes accountability to actually do something with the data. Um, so I think number one for us, I think in my company, is to make sure we have good structures in place to actually capture the data. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know, oftentimes, if you don't understand how the data will be used, you won't capture it. So what I've been doing this first year on the job is to find out what data are we capturing? What data are we not capturing? And then making sure that we're capturing the data that we need. But then how do we put it in a format that is actually interpretable and actionable? And then on the flip side, how do we make sure that we're holding people accountable for using the data to drive outcomes? Mm. And what like kind of rhetorical moves have you found work best for people? Because we see this a lot where people resist diversity, equity, inclusion. They say because of business reasons, but the data overwhelmingly shows that it makes financial sense. And it's very clear that they're resisting it maybe for personal reasons or for political, philosophical, or moral reasons. What has worked for you when you present all this fantastic data and you still encounter either active resistance, nope, that's not working, nope, we're not doing, or passive resistance, um, where people just kind of drag their feet? What would you say to someone who's collected a lot of the data, who has the infrastructures in place that you've mentioned, and still nothing seems to happen? Or they experience outright resistance, like, no, we're still not doing this. What have you seen works best to convince people who seem to be working against their own self-interest against the data? Yeah, I, you know, I like to assume positive intent. Mm-hmm. And I think for the most part, you know, people are not openly, actively resisting the efforts. I just think they don't really understand if we do this, then it's going to lead to this. Mm. X is going to lead to Y. So I think you have to help people understand that. But I think even before that, you just got to spend time with people so that they can understand that you're coming from a good place. Uh, so that's another thing that I've done, you know, in this first year that I've been on the job is really trying to spend time with people to get Mm -hmm. them to understand who I am um, and to understand that I'm not here to bash you over the head, to be gotcha. A lot of people are concerned about council culture and that kind of stuff. So I try to create a psychologically safe environment so that we can have the much more challenging and difficult conversations first and foremost. But I think with that, you know, I just try to spend my time on the people who are going to be the advocates, the champions, the enthusiasts. And I think, you know, those those people create FOMO, the fear (laughs) of missing out. Right. Like, you know, in in most instances, no matter where you are, you know, there's going to be 80 percent of the folks that are going to be on board. And there may be 20 percent of the people who are going to be skeptical. And I think oftentimes we spend our time on the 20 percent and not on the 80 percent. So I just choose to spend my time with the 80%. And I just feel like the other 20% of the folks, they'll they'll come along. And oftentimes they'll reach out. And if you create a safe environment, they'll tell you what the resistance is. And sometimes the resistance is, I know this is the right thing to do, but 
doing this is going to make my job harder because I'm already strapped for resources. I don't have time to do the regular stuff that I'm doing. And now you're telling me I got to collect all this additional data. I got to add these other steps along the process. Where am I going to get the time to do it? So it's not that they're against the efforts. They just want to know, can you give me some additional resources to be effective? And so once I understand what's the source of the resistance, now I can be an advocate for them to make sure they have what they need in order to, for us collectively, to drive the outcomes. Yeah, that's fantastic because that's what we see lots of times where organizations, they start these initiatives and they don't necessarily go anywhere or they don't go as far as the organization wanted them to. It's not because of what you would assume from sensationalist public discourse that there's active resistance. It's usually, I'm fine with it. I don't know when I would have time to do this. What kind of, I don't want to say tricks, but what kind of tweaks have you found that make DEI palatable to people who are resistant because they're strapped for time, resources, and energy and bandwidth? How can you make DEI easier for everyone, for lack of a better word? Yeah. So I think just spending time with them to figure out what their pain points are. What are their pain mm-hmm. points just generally before we introduce change management? Because at the end of the day, D, that's what DEI is. It's innovation and it's change management. And people tend to resist change management. So you have to disentangle. Are they resisting the DEI or they're resisting the change management part of it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so whether we're installing a new software system or we're changing work schedules, people are going to have a natural uh, resistance to change. So I think spending time with people, helping them assume positive intent of your actions, you assuming positive intent of their actions, finding out what their pain points are, and then just being an advocate, come alongside them to maybe advocate with their manager, their boss, their executive to say, hey, Steve really wants to do this, but Steve is having some challenges over here that preceded the DEI efforts. Can we help Steve address this so that we can introduce these other change management? And I think when you do that, people see you as a resource and somebody that's going to be an amplifier of their work and making them look good to their bosses and everybody else. And I'm finding that that's helpful. Yeah. And I think that's kind of creative allyship, finding even people who seem on the surface to be resisting it. They're willing to be if you make the conditions right for them, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So what are three, let's say, what are three ways leaders can take real action on diversity, equity, and inclusion issues in the workplace other than in addition to the 27 you've already given us? (laughs) I will say, I mean, quite simply, DEI is hard, but it's not rocket science. And Mm -hmm. I think we got to resist the urge to make it too complex. (laughs) It's, it's, it's It's not that hard. It's not that complex in light of all the other things that the organization does. Because in most organizations, we've demonstrated we can keep good financial books, we can keep accounting, we can serve customers. All we got to do is use those same skill sets, those same muscles, and just apply it to what the organization looks like. That's the diversity and representation part. Are we treating people fairly? Do we have equity in pay, equity in leadership opportunities and accessibility? That's the equity part. And then the inclusion, you know, do people feel like they are welcome and, you know, they belong and they can be their authentic selves? We got the tools. We just got to have the intention to be able to do it effectively. And uh, I think once we get on board with the intention uh, and the accountability part of it, and that's the other part, the, the accountability We hold people accountable to everything else. You know, I I put it to you like this. 
if you have a salesperson and the salesperson's job is to generate new business for the organization, if the salesperson consistently underperforms and says, I don't know, Justin, I've been out there all week, man, and I just can't find anybody that wants to buy our product or service. Are you going to say, that's okay, Justin, you did okay. Yeah. You know, I, I appreciate <laughs> you. Can Justin keep his job? No, I doubt I it. <laughs> or, or Justin is going to be put on some kind of performance improvement plan. Right. But when it comes down to uh, talent acquisition, I don't know, we have a different perspective on that. It's like, man, we tried to go out and find some people of color and some women. We just couldn't find anybody. It's like, oh, okay. And, you know, mm. that's it. We got to have that same energy, the accountability we have for the sales and marketing people. We got to have that same energy for people who are doing the hiring, as well as the people who are involved in identifying high potential, high performing employees in the company that can ascend to middle management and upper management. Again, we know that we can do it. We just got to have the intention to be able to do it. We just got to have the intention. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Anthony C. Hood for providing so much knowledge and so much inspiration. So thanks for being with us. And how can the folks out there get in touch with you? Yeah, I appreciate that. So I can be found at Anthony C. Hood uh, just about everywhere on social media. I'm, I'm most active on LinkedIn, so you can find me there. But, you know, you can find me on all uh, social media platforms. And again, my the company that I work for, First Horizon Bank, you can find us uh, everywhere online as well. All right. Well, fantastic. And we'll be sure to also add that information to our show notes for all the listeners out there. Dr. Anthony C. Hood, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Justin. I appreciate it. And everyone out there, thank you to you. We're so glad that you tuned into this week's episode of the Uplifting Impact Podcast. We need more people to help uplift the impact. In order to do so, be sure to share this episode, comment on it by going to our website at upliftingimpact.com or provide your thoughts directly to us through LinkedIn at Uplifting Impact, Justin Ponder and Deanna Singh. Until next week, keep uplifting the impact. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.